science story, huh? And I just thought, well, I figured it, wow. out. I it was that tall. golden moment. Because science was on my side. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Story Collider, where we bring you true personal stories about science. I am your host, Aaron Barker, and this week we're presenting stories about journeys to new places. If you had told me 10 years ago that I would one day have a career that required me to use the word journey about 100 times a day, I would have thought you were insane. Uh, But here we are. Just goes to show, you never really know where life's journey will take you. Our first story today is from Ariel Duhame-Ross. It was recorded in May 2018 at Caveat in New York as part of our 8th birthday fundraiser extravaganza. I'm so excited to finally be able to share these stories from our fundraiser with you. Over the coming days, you should be able to find video of them on our website and YouTube channel as well. Um, I had been working as a correspondent for Vice News Tonight for about four months when I realized I was in trouble. I was on a shoot, and I had just come out of a women's bathroom at a rest stop in Peru, and uh, a man started yelling at me. He was yelling at me because he said I had just come out of the wrong bathroom. In other words, he thought I was a man, and it felt like a punch in the gut. Now, I'm well aware that I reside firmly in the gender non-conforming part of the gender spectrum. But I live in Brooklyn, and in Brooklyn, I benefit from a certain degree of wokeness and that signature New York, I've seen just about everything and nothing can phase me attitude. So aside from the occasional weird looks I get when I hold my wife's hand in public, um, Brooklyn's been pretty good to me. Brooklyn gets me. But then I got this job working as a climate change correspondent for Vice News Tonight, And suddenly I was spending a lot of time outside Brooklyn. And that was amazing. Because the mere existence of my job meant that Nightly News was finally going to take climate change coverage seriously. And that mattered to me. But as I learned really quickly, traveling this much also meant that I would get called sir multiple times a day and not always as a sign of respect. It uh, happened a lot in women's bathrooms, which was tough. Um, because when women reacted to me, they weren't just reacting out of, out of hate, they were also reacting out of fear, because they felt like I was an intruder. Um, and as a feminist, there's something particularly painful about having that effect on women. Um, I also ended up having very strange discussions with male TSA officers, where I had to explain that, no, you cannot pat me down, and I would like to speak to a woman, thank you very much. Um, and each time I would have to witness this emotional journey that would flash across their faces that would go from confusion to embarrassment if I was lucky, Uh, but sometimes that second emotion would be amusement or disgust. One time I spent more than half a day with interviewing a woman, and she used uh, he, him pronouns for me the whole time. I was mortified, but I didn't correct her until the end of the shoot because... Uh, I didn't want to screw with the flow of the interview. I wanted to make sure she felt comfortable. It was exhausting. 
especially because that day, my job didn't just require that I ask the right questions or that I be charismatic. It also required that I build a wall inside myself just so I could get through the day. All these microaggressions were adding up for me, but I didn't know how much until that rest stop in Peru because when that man yelled at me, I cracked. I yelled back. I don't remember what I yelled, but I know I swore at him briefly in English. And I think I scared the crap out of him. Um, I didn't stick around though to experience the rest of his emotional journey. Said I turned around and went into the van with the rest of my crew and uh, who had no idea what had just happened. And as we drove off, I sat there quietly, heart pumping out of my chest while tears filled my eyes. I ended up telling them shortly thereafter, um, the rest of my crew, and I apologized. They were very supportive, but I felt like I had put them at risk. Because when you work so often in foreign countries, all it takes is a single interaction with a cop to derail an entire shoot that costs thousands of dollars. And I felt like I should have known better. So after coming back to New York and taking some time to kind of just take some to take stock of what had just happened, um, I made a pact with myself. I decided that I wouldn't let society screw with me or my team's ability to do our job. I would find a way to cope. About a year later, I went to Alaska for the first time. As a climate change reporter, going to Alaska is sort of like going to ground zero, at least as far as the US is concerned. Um, so much of what scientists say will happen in the rest of the country in the coming years is already happening in Alaska. The Arctic is warming twice as fast as the rest of the world. Um, the temperatures there are so startling that a government algorithm by the National Centers for Environmental Information recently discarded data from a weather station in Alaska because it thought the temperatures it had recorded were wrong. They weren't. Things are just heating up so fast there that a government algorithm will look at those temperatures and think they're junk. So getting a chance to see those changes firsthand was a big deal for me. On this particular trip, I was going to New Talk, which is a small village on the western coast of Alaska. I knew going in that, I, I should mention, New Talk isn't a tourism destination. Um, I knew going in that the people there, the 400 or so naval, native Alaskans who live there, are extremely isolated and poor. For about 70 years now, um, gigantic, very large families have been cramming themselves into tiny wooden homes devoid of running water. Americans live in a village devoid of running water. And um, this has forced them to use something called the honey bucket system, which involves peeing and shitting into buckets and then throwing the waste in the nearby river. Um, there is one building in the village, though, that does have running water. It's the school, and it's the center of community life there. And on our trip, the village had decided that we would be able to stay in that school for four nights. Um, my crew and I all knew this was an immense privilege. Uh, we felt really grateful, but I was worried. I was worried because staying in a school meant that I would have to use the women's public bathrooms and the locker room showers. I didn't voice any of my concerns, though, because honestly, they seemed like pretty small potatoes compared to what New Talk had been going through. 
See, New Talk was founded in the 1950s after the federal government built the school there in that location to comply with a law requiring educational facilities for Native children. That had a huge impact on the Native communities in that area because they'd been nomadic up until that point. It changed their culture. But the location, at least, seemed adequate. That didn't last. New Talk is located about 10 feet above sea level and surrounded by water. Um, for decades now, the permafrost upon which New Talk was built has been melting and then eroding because of climate change. All told, New Talk has lost nearly a mile of coastline since its founding. And the US Army Corps of Engineers estimates that the houses closest to the shoreline will start falling into the water within the year. So yeah, I wasn't about to talk about my shower issues. Um, we flew into New Talk on a Tuesday afternoon on a tiny plane. We didn't start filming right away though because honestly it didn't seem appropriate. Uh, we were about to spend a lot of time filming in people's homes and we wanted to make sure that they felt comfortable with us. We wanted to get to know them and, and build trust. So we met with the village elders and then with the school principal who is this big burly man with an unmistakable love for teaching. And it went really well. Our crew felt welcomed and the people of New Talk seemed at ease with us. And then it happened. The school principal walked up to me after we dropped off our gear in the school's tiny library and he asked me a question. He asked me if I had any interest in playing in the women's pickup basketball game that was taking place that night. To this day, thinking of that question makes my heart swell. <laughs> it was so natural for him to ask me that question. But in that moment, it, it really meant something to me. It meant that a man in power saw me. He saw me. That night, I entered the basketball court and played with abandon. Um, when I scored, the villagers who'd come to see the game cheered. And when I accidentally passed the ball to the other team, they laughed. <laughs> it felt great. Um, needless to say that the locker room showers didn't seem all that scary after that. Word gets around really quickly in New Talk, and I had developed a reputation that worked for me. I was the tall female basketball player, and everybody knew it. Except for this one boy. He must have been eight or nine, and... When he came up to me, the first words out of his mouth after hi were, are you a boy or a girl? Given everything that had just happened on the basketball court, his question came across as really endearing. Um, so I crouched down next to him and explained that I am in fact a woman and I just happened to have short hair. And he was fine with that answer. Because for the next few days, every single time he saw me, he would yell out, hey girl, for everyone to hear. <laughs> It made me laugh every time. <laughs> if you were wondering why New Talk was so accepting, allow me to offer a hypothesis. Um, largely, the people of New Talk are native Alaskans. Uh, and in my experience, indigenous communities are far more accepting of me than most other communities, perhaps because many recognize a third gender or people who are two-spirit. But I think it's more than that. By and large, the people who misgender me 
are white. Um, white people seem to have trouble parsing my features. They have trouble figuring me out. And um, so yes, in addition to homophobia, I believe that one of the ways that I, that being misgendered is one of the ways that I experience racism on a regular basis. Regardless though, um, being accepted in Utah wasn't just a nice thing for me. It meant that while I was conducting interviews, I didn't have to worry about how I was being perceived, which also let me focus on doing my job. On our second night in Utah, there was a heavy storm. The people there were worried, they told us so, but I figured as long as everybody was warm and inside, it would be fine. But in Utah, a storm isn't just a storm. Most people think of erosion as something that happens gradually over time. I used to be one of those people. I used to think that erosion was measured in decades, maybe even centuries. But the morning after the storm, I learned otherwise. Because when I walked over to the shoreline, I was shocked. In less than 24 hours, the storm had eaten away at the shore and giant fissures had formed along the shoreline so that chunks of soil the size of cars were now threatening to fall into the water below. It was especially startling because of all the signs of human life on the shore that day. I remember being really struck by a broken down snowmobile on one of the chunks of soil that was, uh, that was hanging on by a thread. And there was nothing mysterious about this. Warmer temperatures were to blame. The soil under Newtok should have been frozen. It should have been able to withstand the storm. But instead, as the waves came in, uh, it was crumbling. Um, it made me feel sick, especially when I looked back at the houses that were just about 80 feet away. It really, uh, it really kind of sunk in for me in that moment that all it would take for people's homes and entire lives to come crashing down would be just a couple more storms like that. The next day, the chunks of soil were gone. And the snowmobile was poking out of the water near the shore. All told, my crew and I witnessed something that I never thought would have been possible. We witnessed the loss of 10 feet of land in just three days. By the end of this century, as many as 13 million Americans will be displaced because of flooding, rising sea levels, and erosion. I knew that statistic before going to New Talk. But when I came back, I could feel it in my bones. And I let myself feel the full weight of it because I think it served a purpose. Being able to see the dire situation that New Talk is in right now allowed me to face the daunting task that humanity has ahead of it allowed me to stare it down, and I think that makes me a better climate change journalist. My feelings do nothing for New Talk, though. Um, New Talk is facing an imminent threat right now, and uh, they've had a lot of trouble getting any kind of help from state and federal officials. But New Talk isn't waiting around for the world to change. They're already building a new village in a different location at a much higher elevation. They don't have nearly enough money to complete it. But the three or four homes that they have built there will have running water by the time they're done.
Um, as for me, I figured out some things too. These days, whenever I walk into a women's bathroom, I make a point of greeting every single woman I see there with the highest pitch, high I can muster. It's not great bathroom etiquette, but it seems to work. And until people realize that the, that the gender of the person peeing next to you really doesn't matter, I'm gonna do it. Because that's a heck of a lot more fun than the alternative, and it makes me giggle. That's it. Thank you. was Ariel Duhame Ross. Ariel is the environment and climate correspondent for Vice News Tonight, the Emmy Award-winning nightly newscast from Vice Media and HBO. Prior to joining Vice, she was a science reporter at The Verge, where she was granted the 2015 Herb Lampert Science and Society Emerging Journalist Award. She has previously written for Scientific American, Nature Medicine, The Atlantic, and Quartz. One quick note before we move on, as you've heard me say these past few weeks, we are celebrating Pride Month at Story Collider. Every episode in June will include a story from someone who identifies as lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, or queer, like the wonderful story you just heard. And we're sharing highlights from some of the relevant stories in our back catalog on our Twitter and Instagram feeds this month as well. So follow us there for more. Our second story today is from Marco Quesada. Marco developed this story over the course of just a couple of days as part of a workshop we conducted in Washington, D.C. last November for ocean scientists, and he performed it at the private show we held on the last day. This show and workshop were made possible by the Tiffany & Co. Foundation, which seeks to preserve the world's most treasured landscapes and seascapes. So mangroves. Mangroves are not the first place you consider when you're planning a vacation. Mangroves are very hot, muddy, are wet, smelly, and full of mosquitoes. Um, as a biologist who grew up in the tropics, I am used to mangroves. I have visited them numerous times as a, as a student and also as a professional. And uh, the mangroves of one part of the country made a, uh, a good impression in me. It's the mangroves on the island of Chira. I first went to Chira about eight years ago. I was actually looking for coastal fishing communities to apply a survey on. And I have heard of the island of Chira and its communities, but I have never been there. Even though Costa Rica is a small country, and this is the largest island in the country, I had never had the chance to visit it. And it is interesting because Costa Rica, even though it is pretty tiny, the capital is in the center of the country, and the coastal areas are pretty much undeveloped. Not until recently with tourism, actually. But uh, when I went there, it um, impressed me immediately as a very rural place, very authentic. Um, It's a place that does not have banks. There are no restaurants. There are no signs in English saying for sale. (laughs) And and that was important to me. And and, and I immediately felt attracted to, to the island of Chira and it's mangroves. Mangroves cut right through it and surround the island. To get to Chira, you have to take a boat from the coast, about half an hour, small boat, usually crowded. You get to a mangrove area, actually, where a small, old 
yellow school bus is waiting for all the passengers of the boat to jump into the, this small uh, bus. And it'll just cruise slowly through the gravel roads, dusty, and across the, the grasslands where, you know, there's a scattered, a scattered cattle and a small communities. And um, it is really a place that brought me back to when I was a child. When I was a child, very, not very often, actually, um, very rarely, we would go down from the capital to, to the coast on, on a family vacation. And that's a little bit of what I remember, what used to be the coastal areas of Costa Rica, rural, very little developed. So um, shortly after, sure enough, uh, I started working in Chita. We deployed from Conservation International a project on fisheries, and eventually we moved into a project on mangroves. So I am there in Chita at 4 a.m. one day two years ago. Uh, we woke up at that time because we wanted to go work in a mangrove replantation project that we had developed together with a group of brave women who had volunteered their time to work in this. Uh, so we woke up very early in the morning because you don't want to be in the mangrove at 8 when it is already very hot. Uh, we dressed accordingly. I'm very, as we say in, in, in Spanish, I'm very sweet to mosquitoes. I, they, 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 <laughs> and I, I don't like them very much, but um, so a long sleeve shirt, long pants, and knee-high uh, socks for the rubber boots, and we were off. It was uh, me, the marine program coordinator of Costa Rica, Ana, and two consultants, and we were walking down the hill from the lodge across the gravel roads in the middle of the night, uh, you have to walk about two miles to get to the coastal area. And sure enough, the, the women were there just waiting for us. Some of them were wearing lipstick and, and, and earrings, which really impressed me and, 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 and struck me as, as, as a sense of pride of their project. Uh, they really know the mangroves well because they gather mollusk shells, uh, mollusks actually, from there every, every now and then. They, they are, many of them, single mothers. They have to, to find a way to live. And they were there just happy and proud to show us their project. They had actually been raising mangrove plants for several weeks now in a mangrove nursery, and they have cleaned an area. So we, we walked through the mangrove. They guided us. The morning was starting to crack, and you can do, we, we have some light already. And we got to the mangrove nursery, and the first task was to move a couple hundred of these plants into the degraded mangrove area. So here we were, 20-something women and three guys, um, just ready to work. We lined up in two front-facing lines, and we started pacing, passing the, the plants from one hand to the other. 200 plants, we moved them 100 feet. 200 plants, we moved it 100 feet again. And so we went into the mangrove and into the morning. And of course, it started getting warm, and uh, I started getting a little bit of a back pain. <laughs> was sweating. I had gotten off my long sleeve shirt and tied it around my, my waist. Uh, I was thirsty because you're moving muddy things. You cannot just step out of the line to have a drink. You're all full of mud, so you know, you're expected to work. I was very tempted to complain, but I, I could see that everybody was happy and, and working happily and with pride. So I, you know, I I swallowed my, my, my complaint for a while, but eventually I gave up. And uh, I complained because, you know, even though we had been working for hours, you couldn't even see into the mangrove. I couldn't even see where we were heading. You couldn't see the, the area that was degraded. 
So I muttered, I complained, and that started a joke that everybody was laughing about and went over and over several times that morning. One of the women said, this is the island of Chira where women work and men cry. <laughs> <laughs> and it was, it was great, but it was also... <laughs> It was an important joke. It, it just, <laughs> of course, it was not the, the, the first time I would have complained that morning, so I came back several times. We, we finally got to the place at every replantation, and, and we grabbed shovels. And if you have ever put a shovel into a mangrove area where the sediment is very fine and compact and wet, it's really hard because it makes a vacuum. Uh, and, and, and digging each hole was, was a, a fight. But uh, we finally did it at 10. 30, 11 a.m., we, we called it a day. It was already too warm. So um, I left. That was my only day at work. And I left with a, with, uh, a lot of um, humbleness and, 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 and respect for the work they were doing. I come from a very small country. And when you come from a very small country, you feel like you know everybody. You feel connected very easily culturally to people around you. There's nowhere in Costa Rica that will take more than one day to get to. It's really easy to move around. Um, but uh, Chira just felt so um, different. And uh, clearly, that day, I was seen as a foreigner by these women. And I was a foreigner to the mangroves also, a place where I have been multiple times. I also work in a big NGO that works all over the world and has headquarters actually very close to here. And I am always seen as the field guy. I come from the field. But that day in Chile, two years ago, showed me how important it is to be connected with the people that work and live in these areas, to uh, be grounded by these visits, to, to continually be open to learning. And uh, especially important is that these people often do not have time to even think of complaining. All they have time off is to keep moving and keep working every day. Thank you. That was Marco Quesada. Marco teaches graduate courses at both Universidad de Costa Rica and the Costa Rica-based United Nations University for Peace, and is a member of the Marine Stewardship Council's Stakeholder Council. He has worked with Conservation International in Costa Rica since 2005 and is currently the Director of Conservation International in Costa Rica. During his work with them, he has had the chance to visit and work in numerous coastal communities, particularly in Latin America, as well as engage in fisheries policy-making processes. The Story Collider is grateful for the support of the Tiffany & Co. Foundation and of Science Sandbox, a Simons Foundation initiative dedicated to engaging everyone with the process of science. The Story Collider is directed by Liz Neely and Aaron Barker, that's me, with help from our amazing team. The stories featured in today's podcast were from shows produced by, guess who? Liz Neely and Aaron Barker. The theme music is by Ghost. Special thanks to Caveat and the Tiffany & Co. Foundation for hosting these shows, and to all my fellow travelers on the journey of life, I salute you. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.